You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can find us online at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You'll find all the back episodes there. you find some links. You'll find a link to send me a message and some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a piece written by Caitlin Johnstone. It's actually got three pieces by Caitlin in this episode. Caitlin's an amazing writer. You can find all her work at CaitlinJohnstone.com. And this first piece by Caitlin was published at ConsortiumNews.com. I can't believe it really happened. During a speech in Dallas at Southern Methodist University's George W. Bush Presidential Center on Wednesday, the man himself, George W. Bush, did a great thing. While criticizing Russia for rigging elections and shutting out political opposition, which would already be hilarious coming from any American in general, and Bush in particular, the 43rd president made the following comment, quote, The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. And then it got even better. After correcting himself with a nervous chuckle, Bush broke the tension in the empire-loyal crowd with the words, Iraq too. Anyway. He then quipped that he is 75 years old, leaning harder on his aw shucks gee willikers I'm such a goofball persona than he ever has in his entire life. And Bush's audience laughed. They thought it was great. A president who launched an illegal invasion that killed upwards of a million people, probably way upwards, openly confessing to doing what every news outlet in the Western world has spent the last three months shrieking its lungs out about Russian President Vladimir Putin doing was hilarious to them. There are not enough shoes in the universe to respond to this correctly. As comedian John Fugelsang put it, quote, George W. Bush didn't do a Freudian slip. He did a Freudian confession. One of the many interesting things about this occurrence is the likelihood that Bush's words tumbled out in the way they did because he's either heard a lot of criticisms of his invasion or has been thinking a lot about them. A familiar neural pathway would explain why his brain chose the exact worst word he could possibly swap out for Ukraine in that moment. This would be a small light in the darkness for we ordinary folk who oppose war and love peace, because it suggests that even the worst empire managers cannot fully insulate themselves from our criticisms. All that's been a narrative management they've been pouring into the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine, and Bush undoes it all with the Bushism to end all Bushisms. 
While the Western political media class constantly rends its garments over, quote, disinformation about the Ukraine war, even as U.S. officials openly admit they've been using the media to circulate disinformation about that same war. And even as the Biden administration imprisons and persecutes a journalist for exposing U.S. war crimes, we get a square admission that the U.S. is no better than Russia and that the only thing obscuring this is the fact that we're all swimming in a sea of disinformation and propaganda provided by that same political media class. And this admission comes not from any low-level empire lackey, but from man himself, the guy, the man whose name alone serves as a one-word debunk of every claim made about how uniquely nefarious Vladimir Putin is on the world stage and how uniquely depraved his invasion of Ukraine. If you really look at what just happened, really, truly ingest it. This one incident just by itself is enough to show you that we are swimming in a sea of lies designed to give us an upside-down and ass-backwards perspective of what's going on in the world. If Bush himself can't always tell the difference between the invasion of Iraq and the invasion of Ukraine, then this means our news media and our politicians are lying to us constantly. They lied to us through 2002 and 2003, and they never stopped lying. And they are lying now in the year 2022. The entire mainstream worldview is a perceptual distortion filter, which obscures the public understanding of world events so severely that Bush has been not just forgiven for his crimes, but actively rehabilitated in the public eye. While the enemies of the United States are continuously compared to Adolf Hitler and condemned through the U.S.-dominated world. In reality, the U.S. is the single most tyrannical and destructive government on this planet, and it is only because the public is fed a non-stop deluge of propaganda that this isn't universally obvious. Even the worst empire managers know deep down that this is true, and in their less guarded moments, sometimes the truth slips out. Next up is a piece published at CommonDreams.org. This is written by Brett Wilkins. Critics of U.S. foreign policy on Tuesday reacted to a report that the United States Senate is advancing a draft bill that would grant domestic courts universal jurisdiction to prosecute alleged war criminals by questioning whether the measure would also apply to Americans who are rarely, if ever, brought to justice after committing war crimes. According to the New York Times, leading senators from both parties have agreed to a draft bill to expand the 1996 War Crimes Act to allow the U.S. Department of Justice to prosecute suspected war criminals who enter the United States no matter where their alleged offenses occurred. Currently, the law only applies to Americans who commit war crimes. And as we know, Americans don't commit war crimes. Lo and behold, the U.S. has discovered universal jurisdiction, Seton Hall Law School professor Jonathan Hafetz sardonically tweeted. The significant policy shift, U.S. leaders of both parties having long opposed universal jurisdiction, largely out of fears that the principle could be used to prosecute American officials responsible for unlawful invasions, torture, killing civilians, and other crimes, is motivated by alleged and documented war crimes committed by Russian forces invading Ukraine. 
Senate Judiciary Chair Dick Durbin said in a statement that, quote, Perpetrators committing unspeakable war crimes such as those unfolding before our very eyes in Ukraine must be held to account. We have the power and the responsibility to ensure that the United States will not be used as a safe haven by the perpetrators of these heinous crimes. However, the U.S. has long provided refuge to favored war criminals, many of them trained or supported by the United States although numerous violators have also been extradited to face justice in their home nations or to third countries for universal jurisdiction prosecution. Lee Carter, a former U.S. Marine and Democratic member of the Virginia House of Delegates, noted that, quote, the U.S. doesn't even try war crimes cases when they do involve Americans. They went as far as to pre-authorize invading the Netherlands if the World Court attempted to prosecute American war crimes, he added, a reference to the American Service Members Protection Act, a 2002 law that not only bars the U.S. from assisting the International Criminal Court, but which authorizes the president to use all means necessary and appropriate to secure the release of American or allied personnel held by or on behalf of the Hague Tribunal. U.S. limits on cooperation with the ICC have complicated the Biden administration's reported consideration of greater involvement in the court's effort to prosecute alleged Russian war criminals, and has a convenient fact, has the inconvenient fact, that American personnel have enjoyed impunity or relative leniency after committing some of the same atrocities, from bombing shelters, homes, and hospitals, to murdering, torturing, and raping civilians that the Russians are perpetrating in Ukraine. International Commission of Juris Commissioner Reed Brody last month noted the dilemma of the U.S. wanting to help the ICC, quote, prosecute Russian war crimes while barring any possibility the ICC could probe U.S. or Israeli war crimes. Sarah Lee Whitson, executive director of the advocacy group Democracy for the Arab World Now, pointed out the quote, Israeli settlements are war crimes under the Geneva Conventions, adding that it would be great to prosecute them here in the U.S. alongside the ICC, where they are currently being investigated. Some observers suggested a simple, albeit extremely unlikely, solution. Quote, we could also just ratify the Rome Statute, my fellow Americans, tweeted Jessica Dorsey, a professor at uh, a university in Utrecht that I am not going to pronounce correctly, but I'll give it a shot. Rechtsgeleerdheid Universiteit Utrecht in the Netherlands and a board member of the UK-based Civilian Casualty Monitor Air Wars in a reference to the 1998 treaty establishing the ICC. Others noted that the only people who seem to ever pay for war crimes are the journalists and whistleblowers who expose them. Quote, the U.S. is already exerting international jurisdiction over the free press via Julian Assange's imprisonment, observed political analyst Fiorella Isabel in a reference to the WikiLeaks founder facing extradition from Britain to the United States more than a decade after he was revealed after he revealed U.S. and allied war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq, as well as other crimes and misdeeds around the world. 
alluding to recently slain Palestinian-American reporter Shireen Abu Akleh. Isabel added that Israel, quote, can murder journalists to no consequence. So this isn't really about trying war crimes, she concluded, but covering them up and controlling the war narrative. And here's a piece by Caitlin Johnstone. International law is a meaningless concept when it only applies to U.S. enemies. Australian whistleblower David McBride just made the following statement on Twitter. I've been asked if I think the invasion of Ukraine is illegal. My answer is, if we don't hold our own leaders to account, we can't hold other leaders to account. If the law is not applied consistently, it is not the law. It is simply an excuse we use to target our enemies. We will pay a heavy price for our hubris of 2003 in the future. We didn't just fail to punish Bush and Blair. We rewarded them. We re-elected them. We knighted them. If you want to see Putin in, this, in his true light, imagine him landing a jet and then saying, Mission accomplished. As far as I can tell, this point is logically unassailable. International law is a meaningless concept when it only applies to people the U.S. Power Alliance doesn't like. This point is driven home by the life of McBride himself, whose own government responded to his publicizing suppressed information about war crimes committed by Australian forces in Afghanistan by charging him as a criminal. Neither George W. Bush nor Tony Blair are in prison cells at The Hague where international law says they ought to be. Bush is still painting away from the comfort of his home, issuing proclamations comparing Putin to Hitler, and platforming arguments for more interventionism in Ukraine. Blair is still merrily warmongering his charred little heart out, saying NATO should not rule out directly attacking Russian forces in what amounts to a call for a thermonuclear world war. They are as free as birds singing their same old demonic songs from the rooftops. When you point out this obvious plot hole in discussions about the legality of Vladimir Putin's invasion, you'll often get accused of whataboutism, which is a noise that empire loyalists like to make when you have just highlighted damning evidence that their government's behaviors entirely invalidate their position on an issue. This is not a whataboutism. It's a direct accusation that is completely devastating to their argument being made because there really is no counter-argument. The Iraq invasion bypassed the laws and protocols for military action laid out in the founding charter of the United Nations. The current U.S. military occupation of Syria violates international law. International law only exists to the extent to which the nations of the world are willing and able to enforce it. And because of the U.S. Empire's military power, and more importantly, because of its narrative control power, This means international law is only ever enforced with the approval of that empire. This is why the people indicted and detained by the International Criminal Court are always from weaker nations, overwhelmingly African. While the USA can get away with actually sanctioning ICC personnel if they so much as talk about investigating American war crimes and suffer no consequences for it whatsoever. It is also why in 2002, the Bush administration instituted what became known as the, quote, Hague Invasion Act, 
saying military force will be used to liberate any U.S. or U.S. allied military personnel from any ICC attempt to prosecute them for war crimes. It is also why Noam Chomsky famously said that if the Nuremberg Laws had continued to be applied with fairness and consistency, then every post-World War II U.S. president would have been hanged. This is also why former U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton once said that the U.S. war machine is, quote, dealing in the anarchic environment internationally where different rules apply which does require actions that in a normal business environment in the United States, we would find unprofessional. Bolton would certainly know. In his bloodthirsty push to manufacture consent for the Iraq invasion, he spearheaded the removal of the Director General of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, OPCW, a crucial institution for the enforcement of international law, using measures which included threatening the Director General's children. The OPCW is now subject to the dictates of the U.S. government, as evidenced by the organization's cover-up of a 2018 false flag incident in Syria, which resulted in airstrikes by the U.S., U.K., and France during Bolton's tenure as a senior Trump advisor. The U.S. continually works to subvert international law enforcement institutions to advance its own interests. When the U.S. was seeking U.N. authorization for the Gulf War in 1991, Yemen dared to vote against it, after which a member of the U.S. delegation told Yemen's ambassador, that's the most expensive vote you ever cast. Yemen lost not just $70 million in U.S. foreign aid, but also a valuable labor contract with Saudi Arabia, and a million Yemeni immigrants were sent home by America's Gulf state allies. Simple observation of who is subject to international law enforcement and who is not makes it clear that the very concept of international law is now functionally nothing more than a narrative construct that is used to bludgeon and undermine governments who disobey the U.S. centralized empire. That's why in the lead-up to this confrontation with Russia, we saw a push among empire managers to swap out the term international law with, quote, rules-based international order, which can mean anything and is entirely up to the interpretation of the world's dominant power structure. It is entirely possible that we may see Putin ousted and brought before war crimes tribunal one day, but that won't make it valid. You can argue with logical consistency that Putin's invasion of Ukraine is wrong and will have disastrous consequences far beyond the bloodshed it has already inflicted. But what you can't do with any logical consistency whatsoever is claim that it is illegal because there is no authentically enforced framework for such a concept to imply. As U.S. law professor Dale Carpenter has said, quote, If citizens cannot trust that laws will be enforced in an even-handed and honest fashion, they cannot be said to live under the rule of law. Instead, they live under the rule of men corrupted by the law. This is all the more true of laws which would exist between nations. You don't get to make international law meaningless and then claim that an invasion is, quote, illegal. That's not a legitimate thing to do. As long as we are living in a Wild West environment created by a murderous globe-spanning empire which benefits from it, claims about the legality of foreign invasions are just empty sounds. And I want to go back to the last quote there by U.S. law professor Dale Carpenter. As U.S. law professor Dale Carpenter has said, quote, 
If citizens cannot trust that laws will be enforced in an even-handed and honest fashion, they cannot be said to live under the rule of law. Instead, they live under the rule of men corrupted by the law. This is the current U.S. legal system when it deals with individuals of different races. These laws are never applied in a consistent manner, in an even-handed and honest fashion. These laws are consistently applied in an uneven and dishonest fashion. Not only are the laws applied in that way, but the laws are written in that way. Things are criminalized based on the extent that they are used the extent that they are experiences of one race versus another. The same type of infraction, drug possession, for example, drugs that are more popular among black users get harsher punishments than drugs that are more popular among white users. This is systemic racism. This is white supremacist systems. This is what, what folks have been talking about for centuries and even more loudly been talking about in the last few years. And many, many people just still don't see, still don't really make the connection between these institutions that we have, all of our institutions, all of our institutions have a history if they haven't fought deliberately and and in a focused and intent manner on overcoming all of those components that that fed into them all of that history of white supremacism that made that built those institutions if they haven't fought hard and consistently and intently against that and most of them have not then they have white supremacy embedded within them our economic system, our education system, our legal system, all of the systems that make up what we kind of refer to as our society or as our social structures, all have these embedded. And this is our task to find them, to find the ways that the white supremacy influences, builds, creates the rules and functionality of these institutions and fucking destroy it so that everyone can be free. It's about liberation. And it goes deeply, deeply into the legal system. It's, and it's not born by mistake. It's not born by neglect. It's born by intent. These, these weren't ex, These are not accidental creations. These systems were, Rule, the rules of these systems, the functionality of these systems are all built by men, for the most part, almost exclusively men up to a certain point, till they were joined by others, uh, and, and pretty exclusively white men for, for the large part of the, the history of the U.S. Um, this is our task, to repair where possible but to probably more commonly and more necessarily to dismantle 
and to rebuild something else. This is what abolition is about. This is what defund the police is about. These institutions, some of these institutions are just so deeply embedded that no amount of reform, we have police reform constantly are talking about police reform, constantly are throwing more money at the police to quote unquote reform. And we get more and more people abused and shot and officers removing their cameras, which is part of the police reform. Oh, they remove their cameras so they can go beat up and kill somebody. And then, oh, they find their cameras and put them back on after the fact. And, you know, maybe the dashboard camera catches a little bit of what they actually did. And someday, years after, it comes out. This is our struggle. And all of that struggle goes on in this enormous, enormous sea of propaganda, the sea of disinformation that we are fed by our government and by those institutions and by our media, by the systems that we uphold as, as these foundations of our society. Speaking of, this piece is published at thenation.com and is written by Lev Golinkin. Late last month, Joe Biden administration publicly confirmed that a, quote, disinformation governing board working group had been created within the Department of Homeland Security. The news prompted a flood of concern about the impact of such an Orwellian organ on America. This is saying the quiet part out loud, and it's it's accidentally saying the quiet part out loud. It's I, I, I don't know how anyone on earth could have looked at this name for this governing board and said, oh yeah, that's it. That's right. That's the one. Only, only folks who are so embedded up their own asses about government propaganda and its, and its need and its uses could name a board, the disinformation governing board, and not have any understanding, not have any insight that that is just the most absurd of absurdities and and it's a, and it's a, i say it's an absurdity but it's a reality it's it's the fact it's te- it's telling the truth this one of the one of the earliest um names military code names all of these military missions and wars and in battles uh, or different events have military code names I believe typically three words and that's how we get Operation Desert Storm, for example, and we can call this massive U.S.-Iraq war perpetrated by the U.S., invasion of Iraq by the U.S., similar to the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Um, we can know it in the media and in the press, not as the U.S. war on Iraq. We can know it as Desert Storm, Operation Desert Storm, this kind of, ooh, this benevolent, this good thing that we are doing initially one of those missions one of those uh those warmongering projects was to be called operation iraqi liberation the acronym of which is oil 
That's the kind of level. They, they, they did pass on that name. They had the insight. They had the foresight. They had the, 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 the wherewithal within their minds to say, no, perhaps not. Um, they probably named it that briefly until someone said, um, maybe we don't. But in this case, they did. Here's back to the story. There's no need to engage in hypotheticals to understand the dangers. One has only to consider the past of Nina Jankowitz, the head of the new disinformation board. Jankowitz's experience as a disinformation warrior includes her work with Stop Fake, a U.S. government-funded, quote-unquote, anti-disinformation organization founded in March 2014 and lauded as a model of how to combat Kremlin lies. Four years later, StopFake began aggressively whitewashing to Ukrainian neo-Nazi groups with a long track record of violence, including war crimes. Today, StopFake is an official Facebook fact-checking partner, which gives it the power to censor the news, while Jankowitz is America's disinformation czar. If the Biden administration is serious about combating threats such as white supremacy, perhaps it should first reflect on the old Roman question, who will guard the guardians? Stop Fake was founded right after Ukraine's 2014 maiden uprising outed, ousted the country's president and swept a new U.S.-backed government into power. Hmm, what? What, is, what happened in Ukraine in 2014? Made an uprising, ousted the country's president, and swept a new U.S.-backed government into power? Hmm, I wonder if that had any influence on what's going on in, in Ukraine today. Formed by professors and students from the Kiev Mohyla Journalism School, Stop Fake presented itself as a plucky grassroots group wielding hard facts and semi-permanent smirks as it shredded Russian propaganda. It gained notoriety by producing slick videos hosted by dynamic disinformation warriors debunking the Moscow lies of the day. Western reporters and checkbooks were paying attention. Shortly after its creation, StopFake began receiving funding from Western governments, including the National Endowment for Democracy, an organization mainly funded by the U.S. Congress, and the British Embassy in Ukraine was also supported by George Soros's Open Society Foundation. Stopfake has run numerous episodes to cover Soros, but failed to disclose this potential conflict of interest, a violation of basic tenets of journalism. Among Stopfake's hosts was Jankowitz, a graduate of Bryn Mawr and the Georgetown School of Foreign Service, who was already part of the burgeoning disinformation warrior industry while in Ukraine as a Fulbright Clinton Public Policy Fellow. On January 29, 2017, she hosted Stop Fake episode 117, whose lead story dealt with the perennial obsession of Russian propaganda, Ukraine's volunteer battalions. These are the dozens of paramilitaries formed in 2014 to fight against Russian-backed separatists in Ukraine's Donbass region. From the beginning, Moscow focused on the violent and far-right nature of many of these units. At the time of Jankowitz's peace, the Russian press was bristling at Kiev's creating a new holiday to honor military volunteers. Moscow commentators depicted this as a celebration of far-right butchers, 
Jankowitz offered an emphatically different take. Quote, Volunteer battalions organized throughout the country, and they supported weak Ukrainian armed forces and prevented further Russian separatist encroachment. Today, the volunteer battalions are part of the official Ukrainian armed forces, overseen by defense and interior ministries, she said in her stop fake debunking segment. The volunteer movement in Ukraine extends far beyond military service. Volunteer groups are active in supporting Ukraine's military with food, clothing, medicine, and post-battle rehabilitation, as well as working actively with the nearly 2 million internal refugees displaced by the war in Ukraine, she added. While Jankowitz extolled the battalions, an on-screen graphic displayed patches of four paramilitaries, Idar, Dnipro 1, Donbass, and Azov. All four have a documented record of war crimes, while Azov is an outright neo-Nazi group. On September 10, 2014, three years before Jankowitz's warm portrayal of volunteer battalions, Newsweek ran an article titled, quote, Ukrainian nationalist volunteers committing ISIS-style war crimes. The story, which covered a report by Amnesty International, featured Idair, one of the battalions lauded in Jankowicz's segment. According to Amnesty, Idair fighters amassed a record of widespread abuses, ranging from kidnappings and torture to possible executions. Three months later, Amnesty issued an urgent report about Idair and Dnipro 1, another paramilitary featured in Jankowitz's segment, blocking food from eastern Ukrainian towns and villages. Quote, using starvation of civilians as a method of warfare is a war crime, Amnesty stated. Of course, almost every war crime charged against one side in this conflict has also been charged against the other. Russia has reportedly recently been blocking food in its siege of Mariupol. The Donbass Battalion, the third paramilitary in Jankowitz's segment, is another unit notorious for torture, as documented by the UN, among others. The fourth group, Azov, not only has its own history of war crimes, but is avowedly neo-Nazi. Indeed, the Azov patch shown in Jankowitz's video has a stylized wolf's angel, the N with the sword, a popular white supremacist rune used by groups like Aryan nations. And the type of imagery, the type of, of iconography that the murderer in Buffalo at the Tops supermarket used. Azov, which is now a premier hub of transnational white supremacy, has been extensively covered by Western media outlets, including by me and the nation. Its nature was well known by the time of Jankowitz's 2017 stop fake video. In a 2020 book, Jankowitz briefly acknowledged Azov as a far-right group, but immediately pivoted to portraying them as victims of a Russian hoax. During Jankowitz's tenure with Stop Fake, the disinformation site continued to be touted as a pioneer in combating Russian propaganda. In March 2017, a fawning Politico story heralded Stop Fake as the quote grand wizards of the anti-fake news ecosystem. It was an ironically prophetic description, given that Jankowicz's misleading nothing-to-see-here report about the battalions turned out to be a mere fraction of what Stopfake has done for Ukraine's far right. And this is rampant these days in, in quote-unquote fact-checking. Uh, fact-checking seemed to be 
near its well, near the first time I experienced it several years ago. Um, real efforts to find out the truth, but fact checking in the last five to ten years has just been another arm of the propaganda machine. How do we spin the truth to fit into our narrative and call it fact checking? So people will buy into the narrative that is not the entire truth. By 2018, Stop Fake started defending C-14, a neo-Nazi gang that conducted horrific pogroms of Ukraine's Roma after media outlet Hromatsk described C-14 as neo-Nazi. One of Stop Fake's founders tweeted, quote, For Hromatsk, C-14 is neo-Nazi. In reality, one of them, Oleksandr Vowitko, is a war veteran and before going to the war, alum and faculty at Moyula J School, journalist at Foreign News Desk at Channel 5, now also active participant of War Veterans Grassroots Organization. As if the fact that the gang has a veteran somehow precludes it from being neo-Nazi. In 2020, Stop Fake defended C-14 in a press release. The same year, news broke that C-14 was aiding Kiev police in enforcing COVID quarantine measures. Stop Fake labeled this fake news, denying C-14 as far right, describing it as a community organization instead, and citing C-14's own denial of carrying out anti-Roma pogroms as evidence of its innocence. In reality, C-14's ties to Ukrainian authorities have been verified by Radio Free Europe, among others. By now, even the U.S. State Department classifies C-14 as a nationalist hate group. Stop Fake has also continued defending the Azov Battalion. Last month, Stop Fake tweeted that the unit, which was formed out of a neo-Nazi gang, uses two neo-Nazi symbols on its insignia and has been documented as neo-Nazi by numerous Western outlets. Quote, doesn't profess Nazi views as official ideology, labeling stories about Azov and neo-Nazism as fake news. This is particularly disturbing because in February, Facebook reversed its ban on praising Azov. Facebook had previously banned the Azov Battalion's account as well as posts celebrating the neo-Nazi organization. The reversal is stunning given the platform's professed commitment to combating far-right extremism. It's unclear whether StopFake played a role in Facebook's decision to lift its Azov ban, but considering StopFake is Facebook's official fact-checking partner, it's hard to believe the group's track record of whitewashing Azov wasn't a factor. The, quote, grand wizards of battling fake news have even dabbled with Holocaust distortion, downplaying World War II-era paramilitaries who slaughtered Jews as mere, quote, historic figures, and Ukrainian nationalist leaders, while attacking members of the U.S. Congress who had denounced Ukraine's glorification of Nazi collaborators. Astonishingly, when Jankowitz herself was quoted in a July 2020 New York Times story about stop fakes going off the rails, the article failed to disclose the fact that the disinformation expert being quoted used to work with the group. Painting neo-Nazi paramilitaries with an extensive record of war crimes as patriots helping refugees all while working with a disinformation group that turned out to run interference for violent neo-Nazi formations. That's the experience Biden's new disinformation czar brings to the table. 
so fortunately, based on outcries of the ham-handedness and and poor mission of the disinformation board, things are at least on hold. This piece is written by Sam Adler Bell and is published at nymag.com. On Wednesday, the Washington Post Taylor Lawrence reported on the disastrous rollout of the Department of Homeland Security's Disinformation Governance Board. Announced on April 27 with a hazy remit to, quote, coordinate countering misinformation related to Homeland Security. The initiative generated immediate fierce backlash from conservative pundits and politicians who compared it to the Ministry of Truth in George Orwell's 1984. The expert tapped to lead the board, Nina Jankowitz, faced a wave of ferocious viral and often personal attacks online, as well as scrutiny over her past statements seeming to betray her partisan sympathies. Now, just three weeks later, the Disinformation Governance Board is no more, and Jankowitz has resigned. And things like this don't go away. Things like this, this isn't even new, this this disinformation board. Yeah, the disinformation governance board as an announced and named and public entity is was new. But this work was already happening at Department of Homeland Security. It just maybe wasn't organized in this way. It's still happening at Department of Homeland Security. It has a new name or will have a new name, but it probably won't become public. It is like when uh, some some massive project like COINTELPRO becomes public because some folks went and obtained materials describing that program that they quote-unquote cancel it. They don't cancel it. They maybe uh, disrupt it and they take the pieces and they reform the pieces in a different way, in a different place with less scrutiny. It is like when um, Edward Snowden leaks the reality that the U.S. government is conducting massive surveillance of every American, uh, including all of the, the phone surveillance um, of every American. And the Congress lets that program die. Well, it doesn't go away. It's just outsourced. All that data is still collected. Maybe it's still collected by the government under cover of darkness. Or maybe it's just still collected by corporations. The ones that own your phone. The ones that provide service to your phone. And they give the government access whenever the government wants it. So while, while things maybe appear to go away. When... The folks in control want to exert their control. They, uh, they maintain these processes and projects. According to Lawrence and her sources, other disinformation researchers, as well as staffers in DHS and on the Hill, Jankowitz was taken down, quote, by the very forces she dedicated her career to combating and was undermined by a flat-footed, timid response from the Biden White House. Does the Biden White House have any other response? 
The campaign against Jenkowitz and the board, Lawrence writes, was, quote, a prime example of how the right-wing internet apparatus operates, where far-right influencers attempt to identify a target, present a narrative, and then repeat mischaracterations across social media and websites with the aim of discrediting and attacking anyone who seeks to challenge them. Oh, so it's it's uh, standard propaganda 101. In other words, the Disinformation Governance Board was undone by a textbook disinformation campaign. This version of the story is richly ironic and tragic. As one Hill staffer told Lawrence, quote, Nina's role was to come up with strategies for the department to counter this type of campaign, and now they've just succumbed to it themselves. But from another perspective, the rights campaign against the Disinformation Board resembled any other successful advocacy effort to halt a government initiative. As with most activist endeavors, some of the facts were fudged, innocuous statements were deprived of context, and tenditiously interpreted. interpreted. Those in charge were depicted as cartoonish villains, and a more complex story was reduced to a fairy tale struggle between the forces of good and evil. Not great, but when it comes to political messaging in our polarized age, par for the course. Obviously, I sympathize with Jankowitz. No doubt she faced an astronomical volume of right-wing nastiness, dishonest attack on her, on her reputation, and genuinely disturbing threats. I'm sure the administration could have done more to insulate her from the backlash. But other than that, I don't see how a fully operational disinformation governance board could have prevented this outcome, except via the very means conservatives, mistakenly, feared it would possess. If, as Lorenz is careful to note, quote, neither the board nor Jankowitz had any power or ability to declare what is true or false or compel internet providers, social media platforms, or public schools to take action against certain types of speech, then how would it have prevented right-wingers from tweeting terrible, dishonest things about Jankowitz? Lorenz reporting seems to arrive at a catch-22. The rights campaign to depict Jankowitz as a government censor amounts to disinformation only if she and DHS were indeed helpless to stop it. I know I'm being slightly glib. The truth is, I think it's important for smart people to analyze the ways in which architecture of social media facilitates and incentivizes witch hunts in the dissemination of hateful, dishonest conduct, content. And the government likely has a role to play in coercing tech platforms to prioritize the public interest over the profit motive and crafting of their algorithms. Yeah, but that's not what they do. But I don't think it requires any great leap of conspiratorial thinking to find fault with a disinformation board under the aegis of the DHS. Government officials, whoever resides in the White House, are professional liars. They lie haughtily in the interests of, quote, national security, sheepishly in the interests of saving face, and passionately when their jobs are on the line. Would Jankowitz's office have been empowered to counter disinformation coming from her own department or only from those criticizing it? And what would its remit have been under the next Republican presidency? As one conservative writer put it, quote, It's not clear to me that Democrats have fully reckoned with the non-negligible possibility that Donald Trump is in charge of the new disinformation governance board in two years. But the other pernicious problem with liberals' fixation on disinformation is that it allows them to lie to themselves. Trump's ascendance in 2016 posed a painful psychic challenge to liberal elites, 
suggested the possibility that many millions of Americans were motivated by deep, venomous dissatisfactions with the world they had helped create, that our cultural disagreements were profound, not superficial, that our perspectives were practically irreconcilable inversions of each other. Political reality seemed to tilt on its axis. How could a man who appeared to them so transparently abhorrent and clownish be welcomed by others as a savior, or at least as a tolerable alternative to the status quo? Quote, Disinformation was the liberal establishment's traumatic reaction to the psychic wound of 2016. It provided an answer that evaded the question altogether, protecting them from the agony of self-reflection. It wasn't that the country was riven by profound antinomies and resentments born of material realities that would need to be navigated by new kinds of politics. No, the problem was that large swaths of the country had been duped, brainwashed by nefarious forces, both foreign and domestic. And if only the best minds, the most credentialed experts could be given new authority to regulate the flow of quote fake news, the scales would fall from the eyes of the people and they would re-embrace the old order that they had been tricked into despising. This fantasy turned a political problem into a scientific one. The rise of Trump called not for new politics, but new technocrats. Like other pathological reactions to trauma, the disinformation neurosis tended to recreate the conditions that produced the affliction in the first place. Freud called this repetition compulsion. By doubling down on elite technocracy and condescension towards the uneducated rubes suffering from false consciousness, liberals have tended to exacerbate the sources of populist hostility. As Joe Bernstein documented in Harper's last year, the, quote, anti-disinformation industry has attracted massive investment from wealthy Democratic donors, the tech industry, and cash-rich foundations. Hundreds of millions of disinfo dollars are sloshing around the nonprofit world, funding institutes at universities and extravagant conventions across the world. Last month's disinformation and the erosion of democracy conference was headlined, by Barack Obama, and featured Anne Applebaum, David Axelrod, Jeffrey Goldberg, and a lengthy list of other academic, journalistic, and political luminaries. I'm sure very interesting ideas were discussed there, but gathering the leading lights of liberalism to an auditorium at the University of Chicago, so that they together can decide which information is true and safe to be consumed by the rabble outside, strikes me as a hollow exercise in self-soothing more likely to aggravate the symptoms of our legitimacy crisis, distrust and cynicism, than resolve any of its impasses. Don't get me wrong, there are obviously hard problems to be worked out regarding technology, speech, and democracy, and I have a great respect for scholars working in that nettlesome nexus. But as Bernstein put it, the new class of disinformation experts, however well-intentioned, quote, don't have special access to the fabric of reality. If faith in our institutions is to be restored, I don't think it will be accomplished by stigmatizing doubt or obstructing the dissemination of falsehood. After all, faith is not a matter of fact and fiction. There are a number of ways that the government can actually 
promote new laws and rules that will help control and help mitigate and help uh, bring to light the, the disinformation and the propaganda. I don't think they have any very strong uh, need, very strong impetus to do the things that will really help because those things also might hurt their own propaganda. Here's a piece by Evan Greer, published at vice.com, on one of those things that could help um, reduce the propaganda impacts on the people and one of the ways the lobbyists are fighting against it. Big tech lobbyists use trans people to avoid antitrust regulation. Washington is on the verge of doing something big, finally passing meaningful legislation to rein in the monopoly power and abusive practices of big tech giants. Feeling the heat, Silicon Valley lobbyists have sunk to a new low, using the safety of trans and queer people as a wedge issue to undermine tech reform bills that would help not harm the LGBTQ plus community, my community. Earlier this month, the Chamber of Progress, an organization that lobbies on behalf of big tech and is run by Google's former head of policy, called on Senator, Senator Klobuchar and Representative Sicilian to throw cold water on their own bipartisan antitrust bills, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act, and the Open App Markets Act. The chamber opportunistically seized on false claims made by Congressman Ken Buck and Fox News host Laura Ingraham that antitrust reform is a way to, quote, stop woke companies from standing up for LGBTQ plus rights. In a letter to Klobuchar and Ciceline, the lobbyists encouraged the lawmakers to denounce Buck's claims, quote, if antitrust is used to punish companies for speaking up on social justice issues, the result could be a chilling effect on corporate leadership against hate and bigotry, the tech lobbyists wrote. That seems reasonable enough on its face, but it could not be more obvious that the Chamber's goal was not to support LGBTQ plus rights, but rather to undermine legislation that their big tech backers oppose. The lobbyists eagerly attempted to use these hateful comments to divide the rare bipartisan coalition that has emerged around antitrust reform in Congress. They also took the opportunity to pat their corporate funders on the back, noting, quote, Many leading tech companies have signed statements opposing anti-LGBTQ state legislation, just in case there was any doubt about their intentions. The chamber followed up with their letter with an op-ed, arguing that big tech companies should, quote, be applauded rather than regulated. It's disgusting, but not surprising, to see conservatives stoke anti-trans fear to score points with their base. But it's even more shameful that the chamber, ostensibly a progressive organization, is putting our safety and interests in the crosshairs, using trans people as a bargaining chip to kill tech reform bills. The fact that they're doing this at a time when trans people, particularly trans children, are actively under siege and being targeted by dozens of hateful and violent legislative attacks across the country is immoral and inexcusable. And in the process, the chamber is amplifying a blatantly misleading interpretation of these common-sense antitrust bills pushed by some of the most bigoted members of Congress. 
The sick irony is the bills the chamber is trying to kill are the first step to reforming big tech's business practices that disproportionately harm trans and queer people. Big tech's monopolistic business model is built on surveillance capitalist practices that are fundamentally incompatible with basic human rights. While Silicon Valley giants have talked a good game about their support for LGBTQ rights, their actions tell a different story. From Facebook's notoriously transphobic real names policy, which it refused to change for years, despite repeated pleas from the LGBTQ community, to Google's systematic demonetization of LGBTQ-related content on YouTube, Big Tech has a terrible track record when it comes to LGBTQ rights and safety. 2021 report from GLAAD, a leading national LGBTQ plus rights organization that supports antitrust reform, blasted big tech companies for its, quote, inadequate content moderation, polarizing algorithms, and discriminatory AI, which disproportionately impacts LGBTQ users and other marginalized communities who are uniquely vulnerable to hate and harassment and discrimination. Apple's draconian app store monopoly enables censorship of LGBTQ-related apps in 152 countries, and the company came under fire last year for proposing, quote, safety updates that experts said would get LGBTQ teenagers kicked out of their homes, beaten, or worse. Apple and Google's long-running war on NSFW content has disproportionately led to censorship of LGBTQ plus content, even when it's not pornographic in nature. Extreme concentration in the tech marketplace has removed alternatives that would allow trans people to take our business elsewhere, even when our security is on the line. Apple's insistence on maintaining total control over what software people can and can't run on their phones is a disaster for human rights and privacy. For example, after it was revealed that spyware companies had exploited a vulnerability in iMessage, iPhone users couldn't uninstall it. That security vulnerability could have life-or-death consequences for queer and trans activists in repressive countries. The American Innovation and Choice Online Act and the Open App Markets Act begin to unwind those abuses. They would ban big tech companies from self-preferencing their own products and services, and they would free app stores from the chokeholds that limit which apps are offered to users online. These bills won't fix everything that's wrong with big tech. We urgently need data privacy legislation, policies targeting algorithmic discrimination, and other harm reduction measures. But if we want a future where LGBTQ plus people and other marginalized communities can truly be safe and express ourselves online, these antitrust bills are an essential first step towards future where all internet users have meaningful choices and more control over their online experience. We expect conservatives to denigrate and attack trans people to score points with hateful elements of their base. But we will not accept tech companies waving the rainbow flag with one hand while using the trans community as a wedge to protect their monopolies with the other. Progressive antitrust advocates are not backing down. We are not afraid. We can call out bigotry and monopolies at the same time. We must. Big tech is free to oppose bills that will finally hold them accountable, but at the very least, they should tell their lobbyists to keep our names out of their mouths. 
And this, of course, is a, a common tactic in the battle for pushing forward or preventing legislation from moving forward um, in, in the, the now, you know, understandably blown up focus on abortion rights and abortion health care. Um, the anti-abortion forces, those folks that want to ban abortions very frequently use as one part of their argument the fact that women of color, particularly black and Hispanic women, use abortion health care services to a higher degree than white women. And the folks that are on the white supremacist camp even use this fact as a way to support the banning of abortion. They claim that abortion is is fundamentally racist um, in its practice and the and it is and in its intent they deliberately try to skew the understanding and perception of this reality um, in their own way to serve their own needs when in reality uh, women of color do use abortion health care services more frequently at a, at a quite a higher rate than white women do but it's not because those services are racist. It is because our healthcare systems and our other systems are racist, leading women of color to need that healthcare more frequently for all kinds of reasons. And that is why abortion healthcare must remain free and legal because taking it away does greater harm to women of color than it does to white women. So, so when you hear those arguments, uh, dismiss them aggressively because while they use this tiny kernel of truth, the reality of the data, they completely twist it to say what the cause of that reality is. They, they totally twist the cause of that reality to say the cause of that reality is that abortion providers are targeting women of color. They want women of color to have more abortions when that is not the case. Finally, we have another piece from Caitlin Johnstone. You can find this piece at caitlinjohnstone.substack.com. NBC News has a new report out citing multiple anonymous U.S. officials humorously titled, quote, In a break with the past... U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. That title just says so, so much because it is propaganda. It's a story about propaganda whose title is propaganda. In a break with the past, our entire history is of propagandizing the people. You don't have you don't you don't operate a massive, massive nation full of disparate people with disparate goals without manipulating them, at least in our modern day and age. So the title once again was in a break with the past, U.S. is using Intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the Intel isn't rock solid. The officials say the Biden administration has been rapidly pushing out, quote, intelligence 
about Russian plans in Ukraine that is, quote, low confidence or based more on analysis than hard evidence, or even just plain false, in order to fight an information war against Putin. The report says that towards this end, the U.S. government has deliberately circulated false or poorly evidenced claims about impending chemical weapons attacks, about Russian plans to orchestrate a false flag attack in the Donbass to justify an invasion, about Putin's advisors misinforming him, and about Russia seeking arms supplies from China. Excerpt. Quote, it was an attention-grabbing assertion that made headlines around the world. U.S. officials said they had indications suggesting Russia might be preparing to use chemical agents in Ukraine. President Joe Biden later said it publicly, but three U.S. officials told NBC News this week there is no evidence Russia has brought any chemical weapons near Ukraine. They said the U.S. released the information to deter Russia from using the banned munitions. It's one of a string of examples the Biden administration's breaking with a recent precedent by deploying declassified intelligence as part of an information war against Russia. The administration has done so even when the intelligence wasn't rock solid, officials said, to keep Russian President Vladimir Putin off balance. Ooh, more propaganda announcing the propaganda. It is one of a string of examples of the Biden administration's breaking with recent precedent by deploying declassified intelligence as part of an information war against Russia. How did we, how the hell did we get into Iraq? Almost every bit, every sensational story, every major story about Iraq, about its connections with Al-Qaeda, about its weapons of mass destruction, about its mobile... Uh, um, poison gas trucks about its its try attempt to purchase yellow cake lie after lie after lie after lie based on flimsy evidence or no evidence or totally fabricated this is not the Biden administration breaking with recent precedent this is the Biden administration following the script what's not following the script is there's some people, I guess this is also part of the script, there were always some people that were telling the truth. And those people were marginalized, those people were slandered, those people were sometimes arrested as whistleblowers. Um, it, it always happened. Um, and those voices were erased from the media, much like is happening now. If you're a critic of the U.S. war in Ukraine against Russia, your voice is marginalized, your voice is erased, certain comments you make online are erased. It is the propaganda machine full force. So, and this is just part of the propaganda machine to say, well, oh, they've started to use propaganda. <laughs> Fuck that. They've always used propaganda. So, okay, so back to the piece. And here, that, that quote ended. And here is Caitlin writing again. So, they lied. They may hold that they lied for a noble reason, but they lied. They knowingly circulated information they had no reason to believe was true. And that lie was amplified by all the most influential media outlets in the Western world. 
another example of the Biden administration releasing a false narrative as parts of its, quote, information war. Quote, likewise, a charge that Russia had turned to China for potential military help lacked hard evidence, a European official and two U.S. officials said. The U.S. officials said there are no indications China is considering providing weapons to Russia. The Biden administration put that out as a warning to China not to do so, they said. On the Empire's claim last week that Putin is being misled by his advisors because they are afraid of telling him the truth, NBC reports that this assessment, quote, wasn't conclusive based more on analysis than hard evidence. I'd actually made fun of this ridiculous CIA press release when it was uncritically published disguised as breaking news reported by the New York Times. This is a tweet from Caitlin. Breaking news, the most influential newspaper in the English-speaking world routinely passes off CIA press releases as, quote, breaking news. And that's in response to this New York Times tweet. Breaking news, President Vladimir Putin's advisors misinformed him about the Russian military struggles in Ukraine, according to U.S. intelligence. We'd also had fun with State Department spokesman Ned Price's bizarre February impersonation of Alex Jones, where he wrongly claimed that Russia was about to release a false flag video using crisis actors to justify its invasion. Other U.S. government lies discussed in the NBC report were less cute. Quote, in another disclosure, U.S. officials said one reason not to provide Ukraine with MiG fighter jets is that intelligence showed Russia would view the move as escalatory. That was true, but it was also true of Stinger missiles, which the Biden administration did provide. Two U.S. officials said, adding that the administration declassified the MiG information to bolster the argument not to provide them to Ukraine. So the Biden administration knew it was sending weapons to Ukraine that would be perceived by a nuclear superpower as a provocative escalation, sent them anyway, and then lied about it. Cool, cool, cool. This NBC report confirms rumors we've been hearing for months. Professional war slut Max Boot said via the Council on Foreign Relations think tank in February that the Biden administration had ushered in, quote, a new era of info ops with intelligence releases designed not to tell the truth, but to influence Putin's decisions. Former MI6 chief John Sars told the Atlantic Council think tank in February that the Biden administration's, quote, intelligence releases were based more on general vibe than actual intelligence and were designed to manipulate rather than to inform. And in case you were wondering, no, NBC did not just publish a major leak by whistleblowers within the U.S. government who are bravely exposing the lies of the powerful with the help of the free press. One of the article's authors is Ken Delanian, who in 2014 was revealed to have worked as a literal CIA asset while writing for the L.A. Times. If you see Delanian's name in a byline, you may be certain that you are reading exactly what the managers of the U.S. empire want you to read. So why are they telling us all this now? Is the U.S. government not worried that it will lose trust of the public by admitting that it is continuously lying about its most high-profile international conflict? And if this is an information war designed to, quote, get inside Putin's head, as NBC sources claim, wouldn't openly reporting it through the mainstream press completely defeat the purpose? Well, the answer to those questions is where it gets really creepy.
I welcome everyone's feedback and theories on the matter, but as I, near as I can figure, the only reason the U.S. government would release this story to the public is because they want the general public to know about it. And the only plausible reason I can think that they would want the public to know about it is that they are confident the public will consent to being lied to. To get a better sense of what I'm getting at, it helps to watch the televised version of this report in which Delaney and an NBC anchor Allison Morris enthuse about how brilliant and wonderful it is that the Biden administration is employing these psychological warfare tactics to mess with Putin's mind. The message an indoctrinated NBC viewer will get when watching this segment is, isn't this awesome? Our president is pulling off all these cool 3D chess moves to beat Putin, and we're kind of part of it. It's been obvious for a long time that the U.S. empire has been working to shore up narrative control to strengthen its hegemonic domination of the planet via internet censorship, propaganda, Silicon Valley algorithm manipulation, and the normalization of the persecution of journalists. We may now simply be at the stage of imperial narrative control where they can begin openly manufacturing the consent of the public to be lied to for their own good. Just as a smear campaign against Julian Assange trained mainstream liberals to defend the right of their government to keep dark secrets from them, we may now be looking at the stage of narrative control advancement where mainstream liberals are trained to defend the right of their government to lie to them. The U.S. is ramping up Cold War aggressions against Russia and China in a desperate attempt to secure unipolar hegemony, and psychological warfare traditionally plays a major role in Cold War maneuverings due to the inability to aggress, in more overt ways, against nuclear armed forces. So now would definitely be the time to get the thinkers of America's two mainstream political factions fanatically cheerleading their government's cyborg manipulations. A casual glance around the internet at what mainstream liberals are saying about this NBC report shows that this is indeed what is happening. In liberal circles, there does appear to be widespread acceptance of the world's most powerful government using the world's most powerful media institutions to lie to the public for strategic gains. If this continues to be accepted, it will make things a whole lot easier for the empire managers going forward. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can find all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at youcantbeneutral.com. You can also follow on Twitter at YCBneutral. Here is Buffy St. Marie with the song Disinformation for our moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. Just when I need
point of view Here you come from nowhere From over the waves I stand amazed I see your greatest hits They blow back down the chimney Into everyone's eyes Creative thinking In the first degree You're a three-way mirror of a one-way world It's a perverse company you work for They build the past, it just can't last It's obsolete by design They send you out rerouting history To make the same old mistakes in a brand new way Come out from under cover, holly, holly, and freedom out. Come out wherever you are. And virgin places don't mean a thing to people who never bring their hearts along. And fools like them never fall at all. And let nobody in They turn and spin your wheels And nobody wins Coincidence and likely stars They dog your trail like a pack of lies Make wine at night when the lights are out You toss and turn you and roll this information you spin it like a silkworm 